Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This is episode 26, Occupy Britannia. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are listening to an episode on the end of the Hallstatt culture. And here's a sample of that episode. So in the first half of the 5th century BC, the Hallstatt monarchies collapsed. The major Celtic centers of power in continental Europe, such as mont and the Hunaburg, were abandoned. And it all just came screeching to a halt. Why? Well, we don't know for sure. It might have been due to climate change. After all, we know that the climate was changing around this period. It might have been due to changes in trade. For example, we know that trade between the Hallstatt Celts and Massalia came screeching to a halt around this period. So maybe political events led to some sort of trade embargo, and that led to an economic collapse. I mean, trade didn't stop. Just trade with the Hallstatt Celts. That stopped. If you'd like to hear more, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And membership costs less than the price of a latte these days. And thank you very much to Chris, Susan, Other Susan, Steve, and Other Steve. Don't worry, Susan and Steve. When I said Other Susan and Other Steve, I wasn't talking about you at all. I was talking about the other ones. You'll always be the main Susan and Steve to me. Now, as most of you are almost certainly aware, this podcast is incredibly late. And I'd like to explain why at the end of the podcast. And I might even give you an update on Kerouac. But for right now, I'm really excited to get back to telling stories about history. So I don't want to get bogged down with what's happened and why. In fact, I'm so excited that the music that we're playing right now doesn't really have the right tone for how I feel. So let's try something new. That's way better. Okay, right. So, when we left off, the Tetrarchy had enough of Carousius and his empire. Carousius tried to play it off and claim he was also divinely appointed and was actually a sibling of the other Augusti, but the Roman Tetrarchy wasn't buying it, so Carousius switched gears and started fortifying the Saxon shore. And don't forget that to begin with, the people in Britannia were probably rather pro-Carousius, recalling the glory days of the Gallic Empire, not to mention that Emperors in Rome were generally like having a flavor of the week. But this Diocletian flavor was sticking around quite a bit longer than expected. And that was causing Carousius' support to start to waver. So we had the Tetrarchy gobbling up territory now, and Carousius was suddenly finding himself in competition, and often outmatched, for loyalty. After all, the new Roman government was capable of beating back the barbarians, which was Carousius's major campaign hook. Vote Carousius because Rome can't keep you safe, or something like that. But it turns out they could. Maximian and company had dealt with the Germanic problem, and that wasn't good news for the British Empire at all. And the introduction of the Tetrarchy was a huge problem for him, Because now he couldn't just cross his fingers and hope that the traditional instability of the Roman Empire would just take care of his rival emperors for him. Now there is a formalized and relatively stable system for transferring power from one emperor to the next. This wasn't a problem that would just go away on its own. It's quite a nightmare, right? 
Krausius certainly wouldn't be rocking out to DJ Cool like I just was a moment ago. And all of this nervousness should give us a new way of looking at the Saxon shore and the London Wall. Maybe the additions were to protect from barbarian pirates and raiders. That's a perfectly logical reason. But maybe they were there to ensure local compliance and to keep watch for any signs of unrest. That also seems to me to be a perfectly logical reason for the sudden construction boom. Look at it this way. Carousius has been proclaiming his divinity for a while now, and has put his fledgling empire at odds with the world's only superpower, while arguing that he wants to restore the empire. Well, now it seems that the empire has been restored, and it is aggressively moving towards the British Empire. So much so that Carousius has been forced to suddenly retreat from his tough guy pose and try to be all buddy-buddy with the emperors that he had only recently stood against. That doesn't sound very divine to me. And I doubt it did to the citizens of Britannia either. Or at least those who knew what was going on. They probably felt they'd been sucker-punched. And so Carousius, if he was smart would have been preparing for a potential civil war in addition to the war that Rome was definitely going to bring to his shores. So here we are. It's 293, and things aren't looking too good. But at least Carousius still held his naval base in Boulogne, right? I mean, that gave him complete control of the channel. I mean, that was great. That'll keep him safe. Well, it won't for long. The Tetrarchy wouldn't look very strong if they let this rival continue to hold power in Britannia. Not to mention that the Augustus and Caesar of the Western Empire wanted their land back. Basically, these damned dirty hippies and their Occupy Britannia movement would have to come to an end. And so it was Flavius Julius Constantius who struck the first blow of the war by taking Boulogne. This was devastating for Carousius. But first, let's talk about this Constantius guy for a minute. By the time Constantius enters the story, he is Maximian Caesar. Though some believe that prior to holding that title, he might have been Maximian's Praetorian Prefect. Sorry, after 25 episodes, any time I see Praetorian Prefect, my instinct is to duck and cover. We'll just have to see if Constantius follows in the footsteps of his forebears and kills his boss. So Constantius at this point was married to Maximian's daughter, but it wasn't always this way. Before he was Caesar, he had a different life, and he also had a so-called unofficial wife. But when a better title came along, he dropped her like a hot rock. Romantic, right? He was probably like, look, You've been great, and I really enjoyed our time together, but, well, I think I'd look really good in purple, so you gotta get the f*** out. This poor woman's name was Helena, who would later become Saint Helena. Joffrey of Monmouth would later claim that Helena was a British princess, and the child of Old King Cole. But he also claimed that Britannia was founded by refugees from Troy, so, you know, whatever. I mean, seriously, Troy. Like the Trinovantes should have been pronounced Troinovantes. <laughs> anyway, so we've got Helena, who was born eh, somewhere and was almost certainly not the daughter of old King Cole, but she was the consort of Constantius, and she gave him a son. 
Constantine. Yep, that Constantine. But unfortunately, Daddy Constantius didn't realize what incredible genes Helena was providing, not to mention that she would become a saint in later years. Seriously, she was a hell of a catch. Nor did he realize that dropping your partner for a better job opportunity was a really douchey thing to do, and so Helena was back on the market. And Constantius had a fancy new wife, and a fancy new war with the British Empire. For Constantius, the lost provinces were a massive piece of unfinished business, and the elimination of Carousius' regime was of paramount importance. It makes sense if you think about it, right? Hundreds of years prior, Julius Caesar had already established that you can't effectively govern Gaul if you've got a rebellious Britannia. Carousius would have to go if Constantius were to wear the purple. And he gave up his pretty outstanding chippy to get this opportunity, so he wasn't going to waste it. And besides, if he could succeed where his adopted father, Maximian, failed, how much more impressive would he be? So Constantius captured Boulogne. Suddenly, rather than controlling the channel and thereby holding a very strong military position, now Carousius found himself hemmed in upon Britannia. Hey, I can hear you saying. Where's the account of the battle? I want to hear a, a rousing tale of war like he did with Boudicca. Well, I'd love to give it to you. The problem here is the history that we've got from this period isn't really, well, history. Rather, they're heroic speeches written to flatter the Tetrarchy. The term for it is panegyric, and they're frustrating as all get out, since basically they're propaganda and bend the truth in all kinds of ways, and unless you've got a reliable source, it's hard to see what's real and what isn't. An example of what I'm dealing with here is, imagine reading a panegyric about Dick Cheney accidentally shooting his friend while hunting pheasant. But instead, the panegyric has Cheney valiantly defending his friend from unexpected wildlife. There are kernels of truth in there, if you know where to look, but most of it is heroic bollocks. So that's basically what we're dealing with. So we're just going to say that Constantius captured Boulogne by building a mole close to the harbor and laying siege, because that much we can rely upon. A mole, by the way, is basically a land bridge made out of stone and earth. So Boulogne is lost, and consider the chaos that must have followed that defeat. Up until this point, Carousius and his British Empire had withstood everything their neighbors could throw at them. They'd repelled Rome. They'd repelled barbarian sea raiders. Hell, Carousius was famous for defeating those barbarian sea raiders. And now they lost Boulogne, and as a result, essentially the channel. And to make matters worse, their allies, the Batavians, had also been defeated by Constantius. Carousius and his empire were isolated. But what about the fleet on Britannia, you ask? While it's true that there were ports in Britannia and Carousius probably did have a fleet on the island, he didn't have complete control of the channel anymore. Now there'd be two fleets on the channel that were at war with each other. So for all intents and purposes, that was no man's land, and Carousius was isolated. And into this mess entered some unfinished business. You see, while Carousius was good at dealing with sea raiders, he hadn't completely wiped them out. And there was still the problem of the Frankish pirates that operated in the waters. Constantius, having cut his rival off, turned his attention to these barbarians that penetrated the low country and crushed them. 
He then disarmed them and settled them into Roman territory, forever changing French history, actually. But that's a subject for a different podcast, and I might actually do it after I'm done with Britain. So while Constantius was mopping up resistance on the continent, there must have been a tremendous amount of chaos across the channel in Britannia. There must have been so much unrest, in fact, that a conspiracy started to form, with Carousius' finance minister, Electus, heading it up. Wait a minute. Bankers and an occupation movement were at loggerheads? That sounds vaguely familiar. Now, Joffrey of Monmouth would have you believe that Electus was a Roman spy. But he also would have you believe that Belgic-born Carousius was actually a native Briton, and there were British kings who wielded magic. So it's right here that we reach another truism in British history. That's almost on par with always read the footnotes. And it's hard for me to say, actually, since Joffrey was Welsh, but here we go. The truism is this. Don't cite Joffrey of Monmouth as fact. Just because history is in the title of his book doesn't mean he was writing an actual history. He was just making it up. So anyway, here we have poor Carousius trapped on what we can assume to be a hostile island with an angry banker staring at him and the Romans building a fleet so they can cross the channel and give him a thorough thrashing. And upon looking at all of this, Electus decided that loyalty was important, that he was wrong to despair, and then he would hold true to his oaths. So he put away his knife and stood by his friend Carousius. Wait, no, that's not what happened at all. Electus killed Carousius and took control of the empire. Now some would call that assassination, but I'm pretty sure that Electus would have called it a hostile takeover. And after Electus made his move, something odd happened that deserves to be mentioned. The Romans didn't attack. Why? I mean, sure, it takes time to build a fleet, but they should have had at least a moderate fleet in the area, and certainly they had troops in the area since they were running around beating up on Carousius' troops and allies. And yet they didn't cross the channel. And it seems that Electus even held parts of Gaul, such as Rouen. What on earth was going on here? I'm not willing to say that Monmouth had the right of it, and that Electus was a Roman agent but maybe he worked out some sort of deal with Maximian and Constantius. Or perhaps the Frankish barbarians just created so much trouble for the Romans that they didn't have the time to take on Britannia. After all, we know that some Franks were Electus's most faithful supporters, so he might have had some sort of arrangement. Or maybe we're overestimating how many ships they had, and they just didn't have the fleet necessary, and it was a tremendous amount of work to build that fleet and cross the channel. I mean, it wasn't exactly a picnic for Caesar or Claudius. And don't forget that the harbors along the channel on the Gaul side were probably either badly damaged or in disrepair from all the fighting. So maybe the Romans simply just couldn't cross. Additionally, this wasn't a simple matter of crossing and fighting disorganized Celts. They'd be facing off with highly trained legionaries who held, for lack of a better term, home field advantage. Significant preparation wasn't unreasonable. But it's still weird that Electus held Rouen. You know, it really would be nice to know how he pulled that off, but like much from this period, it's lost to history. So in a single year, we've seen the creation of the Tetrarchy, the loss of Boulogne, the death of Carousius, the rise of Electus, and the cessation of hostilities. 293 was a busy year. 
a stressful year. A year that might give you the impression that you were living on the wrong side of the tracks, especially if you were in Gaul. Suddenly, they were thrust back to the way things were back in the Claudian days, with a flood of refugees and near-constant raids. Only this time, it wasn't barbarians that were making trouble, it was the Romans. And you know, were Britannia a little more stable, we probably would have seen another economic boom as the wealth immigrated over there like they did in times past. But unfortunately, this time Britannia wasn't immune to all the unrest. It was at the center of it. So for three years, Electus ruled the fledgling empire, but he lacked Carousius' strategic mind. And actually, the lack of military strategy along with his finance position suggests that what befell Carousius was a palace plot rather than a military coup. Given that, I can't help but wonder how he avoided being murdered by Carousius' guards or soldiers that were loyal to him. I mean, he must have somehow gathered the support of the troops, otherwise he would have been butchered, but I wonder how he managed to pull it off. Anyway, the fact is that he did, and he ruled for about three years. And then in 296, Constantius, along with the Praetorium Prefect... Julius Asclepiodotus, and that's the only time you're going to hear me say that last name again, from now on he's going to be Julius, set out to invade Britannia. Julius was an excellent choice, despite his rather shady, yet prestigious title. Julius served as a general under Probus. Remember Probus? He was the guy who decided to put the rebellious barbarians in Britannia in the first place. So Julius might have known about the fortifications and the general disposition of the land in Britannia. So all in all, excellent choice, Constantius. Well done. All right. So we have invasion. Constantius set off from Boulogne with part of the invasion force, while Julius set off from the mouth of the Seine with the other part. Constantius's force was probably actually a feint as it was just a short crossing from Boulogne, and yet Constantius didn't land ashore during the early stages of the operation. This actually would have been a smart move, since it would draw the legions away from the Southampton region, where Julius could land and then have a direct path to the heart of Britannia. Meanwhile, in Britannia, Electus had his naval forces stationed on the Isle of Wight, ready for a surprise attack. But it was a really foggy day, and so the only surprise they had was that they completely missed Julius' ships, and now Julius and his troops were already ashore while they were looking around for him. Incidentally, landing in thick fog was a ballsy move. And as with all ballsy moves, it was stupid. I mean, had he failed, he would have been mocked by historians. But since he succeeded, it's just generally seen as ballsy. And from all accounts, it seems that Julius landed completely unopposed. And then he burned his ships. Electus, the financier, must have been reeling at such a deliberate waste of money. But Julius was confident, and burning the ships shows that confidence, and that's kind of how Roman generals roll. At least the ones with swagger about them. And Julius had swagger. He also knew, by the way, that it had the added benefit of preventing Electus from taking those ships and using them against the Romans when they tried to leave. So it wasn't all swagger, but regardless, it was quite a chest-beating move. Meanwhile, it seems that Electus was in the southeast of England, probably at Richborough, Canterbury, or Dover. The panegyrist claims that upon seeing Constantius's ships, he legged it. 
But you know what I think of panegyrists. Chances are he was in the southeast, probably trying to command all four shore forts nearest to the shortest route across the channel. And upon seeing the fleet, he might have determined that Constantius wasn't going to land, due to either bad weather or strategy, or both. And being confident that his men were organized well enough to hold off an attack, he might have headed back to deal with Julius. Or he might have screamed like a six-year-old girl and ran for his life. But my guess is that he left the shore forts for a strategic purpose rather than due to a growing dampness in his trousers. This guy killed Carousius, after all. He wasn't the sort to get the vapors over the possibility of bloodshed. Furthermore, Julius was in a poorly defended and rich area of Britannia. He was cut off, and he no longer even had any ships to retreat to. It wasn't a terrible idea to concentrate the British forces other than those watching Constantius and crush Julius's army. The problem is that Electus wasn't a military man. He was a financier. And from the subtext of the Panegyrist, it sounds like he had difficulty organizing his troops. After all, they are from scattered garrisons all over the place, or were foreigners such as the Frankish warriors who'd been settled there by Probus. And he was probably unsure of their loyalty. I mean, loyalty wasn't a given in the Roman Empire. Armies switched sides all the time during civil wars. And he probably also found himself in battle before he was ready for it. It sounds like from the panegyrist that he was surprised by finding the Romans. Consequently, rather than marching with a traditional ordered machine of war that the legions were known for, the army of Electus just ran headlong into Julius's army. And it shouldn't surprise you at all that they were butchered. And to add insult to injury, some of the Franks that escaped from the bloodshed fled to London, where they sacked it. <sighs> Thanks, fellas. That's some real team spirit you're showing there. But this actually worked out quite well for Constantius, since he sailed up the Thames and arrived just at the right time to have his soldiers slaughter the remaining Franks, which, according to the Panegyrus, caused the Londoners to be overwhelmed with happiness and gratitude for the Roman conqueror. And why shouldn't they be jubilant? They met a Caesar, and then they were treated to essentially a gladiatorial show and a series of executions. That's the Roman equivalent of dinner and a show. And it was also just an incredibly huge treat to meet a Caesar. Unlike earlier imperial tradition, the Augusti and Caesars were no longer accessible. That makes sense since Rome was becoming increasingly autocratic, and that was actually only enhanced by the imperial cult. But what we were seeing was an ever-widening gap between the imperial house and the senate, so basically between the ruler and the people. And this wasn't helped by the fact that rule was often done outside of Rome, and instead it was done in places like London, where he was killing Franks. Much like under Hadrian, these new rulers took the medieval stance of wherever they were, there was the capital. Now this wasn't by accident, of course. If the emperor was an idea, rather than a flesh-and-blood man, he would seem even more imposing and divine. But anyways, that's a huge tangent. The point is that Caesar was there, he killed the Franks who were sacking London, the Londoners thought this was incredibly fun and they really appreciated it, Electus was dead, and there didn't appear to be any more remaining popular rebellion against the Tetrarchy. And with that, the rebellion ended. Occupy Britannia was over. Okay, where have I been? Well, my hard drive crashed. And not a minor crash either. And genius that I am, I failed to make backup copies. 
So I've been spending ages putting everything back together while I waited for a local data recovery place to get the podcasts and my notes back from the computer. But unfortunately, they couldn't. So I've had to reinvent the wheel. So consequently, all that waiting and then reinvention has caused a delay. And through all that, actually, our apartment flooded four times, much to our dismay and to the dismay of the store that's located beneath our unit. So needless to say, this month has been a little bit distracting, and I was completely ready to declare that November and I were no longer on speaking terms. And then I checked Kerouac's abdomen after dinner last week. And that rock-hard, fist-sized tumor that he had there vanished. Seriously, it just went away. We don't know what happened. So at this point, I think my dog might be a super dog, and now I'm waiting for him to spontaneously regrow his leg. So now I'm kind of okay with November, because that was pretty awesome. So there you go. That's why I was late. There's no need to constantly write new negative reviews demanding to know where the new material is. You can just email me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com and ask. Or you can head over to facebook.com slash britishhistory and find out what's going on over there. I almost always give updates on that site when something significant happens, or just when I want to know what the listeners would like to hear, or when I just see something interesting, or whatever. Or you can head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and post a question. I don't bite. So if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, send them my way. <laughs>